The Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance and the Wood County Historical and Preservation Society are proud to present Old Virginians and Wildcatters, an audio history based on local memory of the historic pike. Written and produced by Carrie and Michael Klein, Talking Across the Lines in Elkins, West Virginia. Parkersburg was the village right before the Civil War. It was in 1800 named Newport. Been laid out, 1810 surveyed. It reached town status in 1820. That name Newport changed in 1810 to Parkersburg to honor Captain Alexander Parker, who had claimed the land before the Revolutionary War. And Parker's daughters were where they got the names of the streets in downtown Parkersburg, like Ann Street and Mary Street and Juliana Street. Parkersburg was just a few buildings. The great metropolitan area was Marietta. Marietta was a planned New England settlement. When the New Englanders came west, they brought their school, they brought their church, uh, they brought their Masonic lodges. Parkersburg was a little cluster of settlements. It didn't have any real streets. It wasn't laid out until the streets were surveyed in 1810. It was not devoid of culture because you had Tidewater families settled here with their slaves. They had barbecues and horse races. The Jackson family was an early family down around the Cisco area. Cisco down here was named after my uncle, Cisco Jackson. Cisco Jackson and Hugh Pribble had a land grant. They all come out from Botort County, Virginia, is where they come from, the Beckners did. We have a Beckner graveyard there. And I think Alan Beckner got, I don't know where it was, 2,000 acres. Pribble got 2,000 acres and Cisco Jackson got 2,000 acres. They called it a land grant. Now, Cisco Jackson was supposed to have been a good man. I mean, a Christian man. They were part of the Virginia aristocracy, the Jackson family. I mean, they were part and parcel of that agricultural commercial elite. They were tied into the Tidewater and the power structure in Virginia. All these people want to talk about what a great West Virginian Stonewall Jackson was. Well, in fact, Stonewall Jackson was opposed to creation of West Virginia and actually fighting to keep it from happening. He was a Confederate. He was loyal to the Tidewater. He was loyal to the forces that oppressed Western Virginia, uh, especially before the 1851 Constitution. His whole family is part of that. I wouldn't name anything for Stonewall Jackson in West Virginia. <laughs> he 
came on and stopped over in Virginia for him. So fun too. Eastern Virginia was a plantation economy like most of the coastal south. And in Western Virginia, you certainly had plantations here and there and you had slavery, but it was not on the scale that it was in the East. The movers and shakers had slaves, but the dependence on slavery for an economy was different, particularly after things like the oil and gas industry around Parkersburg, the salt industry of the Kanawha Valley, early coal mining, particularly after these early industries started to form a larger part of the Western Virginia economy, because of the difference in scale between the Eastern plantation economy and the Western subsistence farming, you had differences in values. They didn't respect the gentry. It was a little bit more of a matter of pride to be self-made in the West than it was in the East, to be sort of a self-made person. Yeah, there was a lot going on in Western Virginia, especially in the 1840s and 50s. That was a real growth period, and in part, that's why the turnpikes were built. Virginia, in the 1840s and 50s, was faced with a situation that something had to give. It just so happened that it coincided with the Civil War in Virginia. There should not have been a state of West Virginia. Yeah, the problem should have been solved internally. There's no eastern North Carolina, western North Carolina. They had exactly the same problems. The governor at the time of cessation was from western Virginia, but he chose to go with the Confederacy. I think popular pressure in Richmond counted for part of that. General Lee said that Parkersburg would probably side with the South. But when the war started, people had to make decisions. In Parkersburg, there had just been a big, huge oil boom, and everybody in town had gone out and participated in the oil boom. And they were making a lot of money, just months before the Civil War started. And the money played a very important role in their decision as to whether to side with the North or the South, depending on which side they thought was going to win and who would protect their money and their oil field more. And most of them decided it would be the Union. And so a lot of those people got involved with the statehood movement and helped put the state of West Virginia together. Being a political man and having served Virginia, I think my great-great-grandfather, James McNeil Stevenson, probably wanted to preserve Virginia, but he just went with, with the North. I mean, we seceded because of the slavery issue. I think that he felt that it was morally the right thing to do. The end of 1862, Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation. Within days, he announced the approval of the West Virginia state. And they didn't even have a slavery provision in the Constitution that went to Washington. And Congress insisted that there be an anti-slavery provision in the West Virginia Constitution. It's called the Willie Amendment. It was forced on them by Congress. And they reluctantly accepted a provision outlawing slavery. West Virginia became part of the Union in 1863. So we severed our ties with Virginia. And the first governor of West Virginia was from Parkersburg. 
Fort Borman Hill is named for him. And what happened was the bill was going to go down in flames in Congress. And Representative Willie, who was in the House, I think from Morgantown, engineered and wrote the clause which gradually outlawed slavery. And it infuriated a lot of the West Virginians who'd written the Constitution who had intentionally left that provision out of the Constitution. They did not want it in the Constitution. And many of them almost quit the movement because of it. What they're afraid of is that if they put it in the Constitution, the citizens would not vote in favor of the Constitution. The South wanted to protect slavery. The North wanted to preserve the Union. They were not necessarily trying to free the slaves. Lincoln did because it was a politically expedient thing for him to do during the Civil War. when Lincoln was elected, there was a party under the name of the Constitutional Union Party. And the Constitutional Union Party was principally interested in four states, the border states during the Civil War. And they wanted to stay in the Union, but they were really Confederate sympathizers. And the president of Harvard was on the ticket, but they wanted slavery. They wanted to recognize slavery in the Union. It was Missouri, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Maryland. And they were very prominent people. So that's the party that elected all the politicians that ran the state of West Virginia, the Constitutional Union Party, a pro-slavery party. And so West Virginia was not just a pro-union state, it was pro-union, sympathetic to the Confederacy. gas industry played a fairly big role in the secession of West Virginia from Virginia. A lot of people representing the B&O Railroad and a lot of people from the oil and gas industry in Parkersburg and up the Ohio Valley toward Sistersville and, and Wheeling had a big time stake in the secession and uh, they were already well enough established to be movers and shakers at that point. The reason that McClellan invaded Western Virginia in the first place was to secure control of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Half of its route was in Union territory in the state of Maryland, and half of it was in Confederate territory in the state of Virginia. That wouldn't do for either army. Somebody had to have control of it, from Harper's Ferry west to Wheeling and Parkersburg. And once it was clear that the railroad was in Union hands, it was also clear that that was the horse to bet on. The oil and gas industry depended on the railroad as a means of getting their product to market.
the railroad and the Civil War were what made Parkersburg. This became a major center for troop supply and transfer and made quite a few local fortunes. Thousands upon thousands of Union soldiers here to supply, uh, to cater to their needs, so that helped the merchants. And you had to have place for army officers to stay and people who were coming. I mean, they came from all over the country when the oil boom started up at Burning Springs and they had to have hotels to stay in. You needed saloons, you know, the whole shebang. It was just like a rippling effect. Parkersburg was one of the first places where there was a hostile invasion of the South from the North. On May 27, 1861, the first troops landed in Parkersburg from Marietta as an invasion force, fully expecting there to be a battle, and that became what's called the first campaign. General McClellan sent the troops across from Marietta to Parkersburg out into Ward County to secure the area for the Union. And those troops then went on the B&O Railroad over to Grafton and then Philippi and then Rich Mountain. But they started in Parkersburg and camped in Parkersburg and got ready for the invasion of the South through Parkersburg. Company D of the 15th West Virginia from this part of Lewis County and Company B guarded the railroads. They guarded every bridge. And my great-grandfather was a guard in the Union Army guarding the bridge, the railroad bridge, the toll gate, West Virginia, so they wouldn't blow the bridge up. Confederates. He was the guard at one bridge with a group of soldiers. So they'd get their supplies through. And I'm sure them supplies went down there to Parkersburg, right there where it all began. Yeah, see, that was so critical to Lincoln when the war broke out was to be able to control the B&O and troops were dispatched very rapidly along the line to control it. Weston became a thriving, booming community because they were timbering out of Webster County and railroads came in. That was partly why they were fighting through here was because of the B&O, and then they started developing spurs. The roads weren't paved. The mud was horse belly deep in the cold, rainy weather. They used the sides of the hills. The road was ill-suited to the movement of an army anyway. You had thousands and thousands of footsteps and horses and wagons moving when before, you know. You had a stagecoach once a week and you know, maybe freight wagons every day and a cattle drive and this and that, but not nearly this level and intensity of use. Weston was pretty much torn up right after the war because there was a core of Confederate sympathizers in Weston. And in fact, Jonathan McCauley Bennett, who was the first auditor of the state of Virginia during the Civil War, was a leader in the community. My great-grandfather, he actually fought at Bunker Hill. And he was a Confederate. I think it was the 17th Virginia Cavalry. Of course, that was a state. And you went with the state, you didn't go because it was slave. It was because that's who the militia was, and that's who they went with. Mother Virginia, 
Virginia was an institution. Virginia was very dear to the heart of the people here. And the people that had come from Virginia were old Virginians. There were people here who were neighbors of George Washington. Some of the prominent people here had gone to the same church with George Washington. Very important people in this area. And their feeling was for Virginia, not necessarily for slavery or against slavery. It had a horrible conflict between wanting to stay with Virginia, but wanting to stay in the Union. And slavery didn't enter into it, except for a secondary thing. And that was the main problem in West Virginia. The turnpike was a main avenue through the county for the war. Buchanan being right on the turnpike. Marcia Sumner Phillips's diary was written for the first two years of the war right here on Main Street, and she talks about how Buchanan changed hands all the time. January 21, 1862. The band sounded very sweetly tonight when it played the tattoo. Just across the street is a large and elegant house owned by Squire Janney a hot secessionist who, when the Union people of Upshur began to assert their rights, found the place too hot to hold him, and absconded with his family, leaving house, furniture, and all. An old Union man and woman occupy one room, and all the others are occupied by the officers of the 3rd Virginia. At night, The house across the way looks very bright and pleasant, every window ruddy with the coal firelight from the different rooms of the officers. Just a little down the street is the Methodist Church, where our boys are quartered. Every church in town is occupied either as quarters for soldiers, for magazines, or commissaries. The most elegant house in town is used as a hospital, It is the property of Mifflin Lorenz, who absconded at the same time that old Janney did, and for the same reason. He was county clerk. A great many office-holding rebels fled at the same time. And Upshur County had, for a while, no civil law. Military law prevailed. But now we have good union men filling the offices that these scoundrels vacated. On the 21st of December, when the militia met to muster, old Doc Pinnell made them a speech. He said he was in the West at the outbreak of this rebellion and that he was very anxious about Western Virginia, especially Upshur County, until he heard there was an effort being made in Little Massachusetts, meaning French Creek, to raise a Union Volunteer Company. And then he said, I knew Upshur County was safe. The turnpike was the main military route across the area, and it was both north and south for the early parts of the war. those counties were dramatically split between the North and the South, and the guerrillas were every place. And it wasn't until 1863 that they got the firm control on this part of the state. 
And even then, clear into 1865, the guerrillas were always out in force. And you never knew when you were going to get attacked by a guerrilla force of Confederate sympathizers. We had had one real bad episode in southern Upshur County when the Upshur militia was practicing, old men even, and little boys with sticks on their shoulders, and a Confederate bushwhacker group came out of Webster County and captured them. There were 70 men that were captured. That was very early in the war, and they were taken off. And over half of those men died, some of them even in Andersonville, leaving behind you know, this enormous gap in the community for sure. And we recently got a hold of a diary of a Civil War soldier who marched along the turnpike on his way from Parkersburg to Glenville. And troops he was with were sent by rail to Petroleum in the northwest section of Ritchie County. And then they hiked down Goose Creek to the turnpike. And then they hiked the turnpike to, it's kind of vague, but probably Burnhouse. And then they went to Glenville. And he tells about spending a night at Cisco and they exchanged shots with the Confederate sympathizers. And the next day, he came back with a flag. He'd captured a flag. Then when they got to Webb's Mill, they were happy to see that it was under control of Union sympathizers and the Stars and Stripes were flying in the air. Buchanan changed hands like 11 times in a two-week period. It would have been an upheaval most of the time. Most states only saw the Civil War as major battles here and there. In West Virginia, it was a major battle for five years between the guerrillas and the Southern sympathizers and the Yankee and the Union troops and the home guards. In Weston, they was upset because they'd go up the street and the shoe stores would be full of shoes and stuff. They'd go up the next morning, there wouldn't be a one. And, and people was taking them out and taking them to their sons, you know, that were fighting in the Confederacy. They'd come home almost barefooted, you know, they didn't have shoes, and so that town people furnished them with shoes. There was more open warfare and battles further east, but I think the politics of the situation affected everybody, regardless of where you lived in the country. And it was a topic of discussion that caused heated debates and rifts in families, separations, disputes, and I know in this area, there was what they called bushwhackers. There was one man here in Ritchie County. He was assassinated on his way home. He was very vocal in his support for the Union, and he was killed. My grandmother would have said they had bad blood. They had turned Confederate during the war, you see. That's what she always said about people that had gone, <laughs> gone to the South, the Southern sympathy. My people come down here from Hancock, Maryland, and that was all Southern. It was below the Mason-Dixon line anyhow, so we're in Dixie. <laughs> On the western side of the county, the Shears, the Krauses, the Baileys, was these same families who were the men who made up part of Company B of the 15th West Virginia. When the war came along, they stayed loyal to the Union, they had worked hard to get this land. They were buying it on time, and so they were loyal to those who had brought them. When troops moved through, they lived off the citizens of the area. They stole horses, they stole food. If you had a garden, they came in, dug up your garden, and took the potatoes and took the onions so they could make meal. They kind of moved in on you. 
and the guerrillas did it, and the Union troops both did it. It was general havoc. And then the Jones and Bowdoin raid came through here in May of 1863. Their goal was to get to Parkersburg, but they didn't make it that far. But they came through Ritchie County and to Cairo and burned the tunnel down there and some bridges. One of their goals was also to recruit and also to gather up cattle and horses. They came to Harrisville and they wrecked the post office. And in the minutes of the Harrisville Baptist Church, it, it, there's an entry. No services held on whatever that Sunday was due to Confederate troops in the town. And they turned south across the turnpike. We're not talking about a small raiding party. It took four hours from start to finish for that raiding party to pass through an area. So they had 1,500 troops and, and 900 horses and cows that they were moving. One time they took 100 people prisoner, took them up to Ohio to a prison camp. Did you know about that? They took some of them in wagons and most of them had to walk. And they took the only medical doctor in town. And the people raised thunder. That's when the Union Army still had this place under control. But they took 100 people just all down Main Street. Yeah, they were all Southern sympathizers. They knew because they were taking shoes for the Confederate soldiers. And they was, you know, harboring them. In Stonewall, Jackson's Mills, where his home was, and his uncle Cummings had raised him because his father died when he was young. And every once in a while, he'd come and visit that somebody would report it. And they'd send some men on horseback down there to capture him. And he, he jumped out of the mill into the river and swam across and went down Sycamore Lick. And every house he'd come to, he, he'd go in and they'd help him, give him change of clothes or something. And, Wait till the Yankees went by. The southerness of Parkersburg was downplayed later on after the Civil War when it was not fashionable to be southern anymore. And if you look in the newspapers and other written evidence after the Civil War, it is astonishing to us today the hatred that existed between families and individuals here in Wood County because of their political beliefs coming out of the Civil War, you know, whether they were Southern sympathizers or Northerners. And there are people who use national calamities like this to vent their most primitive feelings, you know, of revenge and, and to kill. And, you know, and it's all cloaked by political necessity or political righteousness. Do you know what I mean? And here you had to take an oath, you know, of loyalty to the Union. And anyone who's suspected of being a Southern sympathizer, you know, a farmer or his family or citizen here in town, a town dweller, was watched. When the war was over, this was a very divided area. The Constitution of the state of West Virginia was written so that a Confederate sympathizer or a Confederate veteran had no rights when he came home. And that was true until 1872. And a Confederate veteran could not vote, could not hold office, could not teach school, 
could not execute a deed, a legal process, any Confederate veteran. The Capitol was in Wheeling. And the minute they rewrote the Constitution and gave Confederates and their sympathizers the right to vote, they moved the Capitol south to Charleston. Led that was initially built in 1882 between the Little Kanawha River and the BNO Railroad. And uh, between the railroad and the river is where this mill was built. A very large mill. It rivaled the mill in Parkersburg. We had cut a lot of ship timber out of the mill, white oak ship timber. And of course, at that time, the logs come down the river in raft form, uh, most of them from an area called the West Fork. Farmers around used horses for everything, and especially in the timber business, the big Belgians, a very strong, big horse. Come on, Bob. Get up and they would pull the logs out of the woods after they were cut down. They would form this timber into rafts by strapping the timber together. And then in the springtime, when rain started coming and the ice started melting on the rivers and creeks, the people floated these rafts down Indian Creek into the Hughes River and then to the Little Canola River to a place called Greenville. And at that point, the logs were separated and the money was paid and then the logs were processed and sent on down the river. Almost all families back then did this as an extra source of revenue to supplement farming and whatever else that they did. They would build a raft that was the size of the old oil barge. And the raft could be put on the river and these could be tied together. They had little shacks on the raft where the raft people lived, and then they would float down the river till they got to one of these locks, and they'd untie the rafts, and they'd float one of them through the lock, and then tie it up until they could bring another one through, and then they'd tie them all back together, and then keep going on down the river. They was getting these logs out to raft them down to the Parkersburg Mill down here, and when the river got up, they had high stream, you know, and a lot of current. This lumber business got started like crazy. And they built several lumber mills in Nicolet and in Parkersburg. And they were sawing lumber and shipping the lumber off to Europe. And it was an amazing business they had here. River, there was several lumber camps, lumber mills, and stave mills. A stave mill 
used band saws and sawed pieces that could be then finished by hand and put together and make barrels out of them. That's where people worked if they didn't work on a farm was in a place like that. People turned their homes into what we call bed and breakfasts now and the rafters took advantage of this to eat and have places to sleep on their trips down the river. The raft traffic got so great at one point there was people went out and painted advertisements on rocks along the river. There was one distilling company that had a large painting down there below McFarland advertising their whiskey products as people went down the river. The Creole family had a house there called Bacon Hall. But just across the river from Bacon was a place called Scarcefat. Scarcefat. And supposedly, in the early years, there were some timber men came through. And at that time, they used lard or suet to lubricate their blades on their saw. And they were looking for some fat, lard, suet, whatever you call it. And uh, the people over there said, we're sorry, we're Scarcefat. <laughs> so that's supposedly how the name Scarcefat came. But uh, that was right across the river from Playsville. It's an interesting area. There's a big rock formation up on the hill top that's called Devil's Tea Table. And sections of the river have different nicknames that loggers many, many years ago gave to the river as they were floating the logs down to the mill. Devil's Race Path, a straight stretch of the river that apparently the water went pretty fast. And at the end of that Devil's Race Path in a sharp bend, it was called the Devil's Dodging Hole. One of my great old friends, his dad worked for the mill. He rode the log rafts from West Fork River to the mill. He said he can remember his dad coming home and his clothes used to be soaking wet and frozen. <laughs> They'd fallen off the log raft. The loggers, after a long trip down to the mill, they had to walk back to wherever they started. And on a big rock on the side of the river, some brewing company had painted an advertisement of their liquor on the rock, reminding the loggers when they got to the store to be sure to get one of their bottles for the walk home, I guess. <laughs> uh, that really tickles me when I think about that. Probably took them longer to get home than it should have. Then there was the Devil's Tea Table, which was a whirlpool in the river. There were a lot of people lost their lives in these ventures, mostly by drowning. And I think one gentleman who was actually one of my relatives was pulled under by the whirlpool at the Devil's Dodging Hall. He got sand in his lungs from his experience, which left him pretty much crippled the rest of his life. breed of people took these rafts down the river to the sawmill but it was a big source of income for the people who lived in this area at this time. The big mill in Nicolette shut down in 1917. They couldn't get the timber then. It, you know there was just been that much abuse of it. During that time period and earlier there were a lot of mills along the river not as large as this mill 
but the amount of logs that came out of the West Fork, it was just, uh, just unreal. There's lots of pictures of Parkersburg Harbor. We can see the Parkersburg Mill. They had a lot of logs in the bottom of the river, and they would lose a lot of logs. Dad and mother came to Upshur County in 1917, in the coal business. Dad opened his own coal mine down Hodgesville. Those were what are called the hand-loading days when the man would go in with a shovel and a pick, and he would load the coal into a little car. And they'd hook a mule or a pony to the car. And the mules were smarter than the ponies. The cars would come together. There was a coupler, a couple of two cars, and maybe four inches of slack between them, which means that they could bump like that. The typical mule, the mule I'm talking about, would count three bumps. Okay, I'll pull. Four bumps, uh-uh, I ain't gonna do it. It's not my job description. Three bumps, okay. Four bumps, no. And the ponies would go and, and, and go, but the mules would say, oh, no, I, I'm, not, I'm just not well today. I just can't do it, you know. And they were so smart, but absolutely. Three bumps, okay, I can do this. They would pull it to where the mainline motor could couple it and pull it outside. I have a letter to my great-grandfather, George Washington Tenney, from Henry Gasway Davis's lawyers to buy up his coal rights for a dollar an acre. This was 1904, and uh, right in Tallmansville. Well, we got the coal mine. Of course, Elkins was just being put together as a town, so our little burg got the Greenmar Coal Company. And all of life that was right there encapsulated in our little village. It was an old pioneer kind of thing, but now all of a sudden it was an industrial. It had the railroad and coal mines and company houses along the road and the whole thing right across from my great-great-grandfather's house. The Ritchie Mines operated approximately 1850 through about 1880 or so. Closed down, reopened once around 1900. The Ritchie Mines was actually a vein of solidified oil. And when it was melted down, it produced asphalt. And it, this asphalt was used to pave roads mainly and was exported from there as far away as England where it was used to pave a lot of roads in England. So it was quite an industry back in that area. The mines actually got deep enough that they were below the level of some of the creeks in the area and water started to become a major problem in the mines and they had not the technology back at that time to deal with the water. So it was closed down and was never reopened because there, there was cheaper ways found of making asphalt. And they said some of the streets in New York are still paved with that same asphalt. I figured they've been covered over several times, but it was shipped around the world and eventually was mined out. And they had a big explosion when it was underneath the creek 
taking it out, and that's when they shut it down because they about run out anyhow. They built what they called the Calico Railroad from Cairo out to that mine, and they called it the Calico Railroad because it was about as wide as a bolt of calico material, <laughs> which I think is really exciting. And that was a steam engine. You can still see some of that grade where that railroad was. When the mines closed down, another fellow bought the train, and he made the tracks cover head to McFarland to haul in oil field equipment and groceries. County and went across country through Mellon, West Virginia, and it came down to intersect with the Stanton Pike at a community called McFarland, which is approximately seven miles west of Smithville on Route 47. This railroad was the main source for getting staples into the area rather than making use of the Stanton Pike so much, which required freighting things in by horses. I've seen a lot of horse and wagons going up and down the road, hauling gas engines, hauling pipe, pieces for plants. I've done a little of that myself. I used the fellas team down in Cisco. They were drilling wells back on the hill, and they couldn't get the pipe back there. And me and another fellow took two teams and went down there and hooked two teams together on a wagon and hauled the pipe back on the hill using four horses. Did you picture that? <laughs> I was 16, big Belgian horses. He had a pair of black ones and I drove a pair of gray ones. <laughs> One of the major producing oil fields in the world was right up at Burning Springs, about 50 miles up the Little Canal River. And all that came through Parkersburg. William Nelson Chancellor just had the Midas touch because he seemed to have succeeded at just about everything he tried. He started out in banking. His banking partner was a man named Johnson Camden. And Johnson Camden was also a very ambitious man. And the two of them, I think, were very successful partners in a variety of things. Camden got very interested in the oil business in the late 1850s and started an oil refinery here in town. And William Nelson Chancellor was a partner in that refinery. They built a refinery in Parkersburg and Rockefeller came in with these henchmen and forced them to give up the oil companies and 
he would use very strong force and he'd bring in a bunch of people that would just threaten your life if you didn't do what he wanted. And he actually came in here on a train one day and got off the train and went over there to Camden's office and just told him, he says, I want your operation, so just give it to me. And they forced him to do it. On a farm near Burning Springs, they were drilling for salt wells. Salt was a highly prized commodity in pioneer days for the preservation of meat primarily, for tanning and, and so forth. And so they were drilling for a salt well in this area, and it kept getting polluted with this black stuff, which was the oil coming out of the ground, and they finally figured out it would burn. Well, even from Indian days, there was a place in the hillside up there where natural gas and petroleum would seep out of the ground, and the Indians would light that, and it would burn, and it was like a spring, so they called it a burning spring. There was a geologic alkaline that brings the oil right up to the surface. And that was from Marietta High, clear down to Burning Springs, West Virginia. And it was first discovered here at California. We have an account, I think it was in the New York Herald. They talk about getting off their horses. The ground is mushy and they push a stick down in the ground and oil fills up the hole where the stick was. Different rock formations. Big engines, what they call it. Lime. Benson, Balltown, Speechley, 50 foot. We had a list of them here one time, all the different rock formations. That gives up your gas and your oil. Right here in front of me, there's 40 of them. We have Upper Maxim, Lower Maxim, Little Lime, Blue Monday, Big Lime, Keener, Big Engine, Squall, Weir, Bria, Gantz, Gordon, Fifth Sam, Elizabeth, Warren, Speechley, Balltown, Riley, Benson, Alexander, First Elk, Second Elk, Salt Sand. It just goes on and on and on. Like I say, there's 40 of them here on our list, statewide. We had wells down on our farm, and I was raised to go out into the oil field where my daddy was a driller. And he showed us the different sands that was in the wells. They kept little samples of it. And, of course, we love to hear about all of that. They call them seeps. And by 1819, they were commercially selling this oil in barrels in Parkersburg and Marietta. And it was being used in manufacturing plants in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh as a lubricant. And it was used as a medicine. thing that people used the turnpike for during the California gold rush was of course getting west. If you lived in Virginia and you wanted to head for California to find your riches once you got to the Shenandoah Valley, the first leg of your trip would have been over the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike to Parkersburg where you could catch a riverboat down the Ohio and up the Mississippi and over to the Missouri River and to the west where you could continue west overland. Bushrod Washington Creel built the California house as a way station. There was a huge horde of people coming across the turnpike going to California. And so he called it the California house because of the California gold rush. And they wanted to know why he didn't come along and go with them to California. And he said, I'm staying right here with my black gold. 
I don't need the gold in California. My grandparents moved in California house. There was a toll gate there. You had to pay to come on down the old Staunton Pike to Parkersburg. A wagon and a team and a driver was a quarter. Four-wheel riding carriage was 20 cents. Cart or two-wheel carriage, 12 and a half cents. A man and a horse, six and a quarter cents. Cattle per head was a quarter of a cent. Sheep or hogs per score was three cents. That was back there right after the Civil War in 1865. They had a bell, like a dinner bell, at the toll house. It was there by the California house. They lived right there and worked at the toll house. Alan was the farmer, and his wife took care of the toll house. My great-grandmother and great-grandfather, Alan and Martha Beckner. Oh, she's a good woman, short-like lady, and he always had a big beard. And it supposedly burned in 1901, and there was another house built on the California location shortly thereafter. It burnt while my grandparents lived there. And they never built it back, but the foundation and everything was there. There's a big house. We claim that this area at California is the birth of the nation's oil industry. Pennsylvania claims that the first oil well was drilled at Titusville, Pennsylvania. Forty years before that, they were hauling oil out of here in barrels and selling it all over the United States and Europe. And they learned how to pump the oil and separate the salt water and the oil and they sold that oil also as a commercial product. And they called that well, in the process of sorting out the oil and the water, the oil mill. 30 days before the Drake well came in in Titusville, one of Drake's friends and neighbors came to California and bought the oil mill. I don't care which one of them is first, as long as it's here. Of course, the oil industry gave rise to several other industries, too, like barrel making. It had to have some way to contain the oil. Of course, the blacksmith trade and, and carpentry trade and, and every skill was applicable to the oil strike. I mean, they, they needed everybody. They needed metal workers. They needed woodworkers and, and all. They drilled a well up on Copley, and they named it Copley Number 1. It was on the Copley farm. That was in 1900, that was before my time. The, the old timers that I talked to, which I have a picture here of, you can see it looks to me like there's at least a hundred tanks sitting around that well. The old story said there was so much oil to come out of that one well that they couldn't even cap it up and they dammed the rivers and the creeks up and caught the oil on before they got it under control. And said it was the largest oil well ever drilled east of the Mississippi River. And it's still producing, I think. Now we're going back over in that same area and they're drilling wells around it, but they never have done anything like that again. But I'm sure that old vein of oil is in there somewhere that somebody's going to hit sooner or later. And they're all wooden tanks. That's hard to believe. And I can't count them all here. It's just an old picture that was taken. And I just can't believe the number of tanks going up that hollow. I'd be guessing there's a hundred of them sitting there that, that caught this oil. And they hauled out of it day and night. 1900s wasn't many mile away Fords even then, see? They probably hauled that out of their horses. 
but it's about 15 miles off the main drag up to Copley Road to where that well is, so that was quite a haul. Unbelievable how them old timers done that, isn't it? Unbelievable. By the late 1880s, they learned to drill deep wells. They didn't have geological instruments like we have today, so the way they found oil fields that they just wildcat it, and my grandfather did it. That's how he came into the state, drilling for Standard Oil and drilling for a lot of these companies that were just exploring. They had no idea where the oil was, but they had to find it. And if you hit it big, you became a very wealthy person, and if you didn't, you lost everything you had, and that was very common. These people came in here and invested fortunes. In the 1920s, there was quite an oil and gas boom. One man told me one time that through the town, you could almost throw a rock from one drilled gas well to another one, clear through Cox's Mills. Of course, when the first oil wells were drilled, they were wooden derricks. And then they started using steel for their derricks. And the derricks was just all over the countrysides on hills and bottoms where the wells were drilled. When my mother was 16 or 17, they drilled wells on their farm. The people that drilled boarded at Grandma Knoll's house. The girls had to pack the men's lunch, fix their breakfast, and send them out to the well, and then they had to have dinner ready when they came home in the evening. One of the families that live over next to Cox's Mills, Manly Zinn family, Manly and Veda built the big house, the two-story white home. And during the 20s, when there was a lot of drilling and teamsters in this area, they kept boarders. And most of the time, there was an average of about 20 boarders that lived there. And they paid a dollar and fifty cents a day for their room and board. And when a gas well was drilled or it would come in a lot of times there was more men there they remember that at one time there was 70 men at the zen home for breakfast i started working oil field when i was a kid really in fact i never advised my boys to get in it because it was dangerous work then to what it is now but i worked on standard derricks when i was in high school Usually you work 12 hours a day. I was never home much when I was raising the kids. Been a long time traveling, here Long time traveling away from home. Been a long time traveling, here Just to lay this body down. But back then, that was about the only work you knew. The Ritchie County, there wasn't any other jobs till after the war. Most everybody worked, farmed, or worked in the oil field. There was a lot of talk back and forth from people from these different professions. Some of them accusing the people in the oil gas business of being greedy, and others accusing the farmers of being old and set in their ways and not progressing as much as, you know, some of the rest of the family did. I remember them happening when I was a kid. I can remember parts of the family being Democrat, and that was mostly the parts that stayed on the farms. I can remember a lot of the people that went into the oil and gas business being on the Republican side of the political issues. 
Some of those chats got very heated, and people had very strong ideas about these things. And it would lead to some parts of the family not speaking to the other parts of the family for maybe even years at a time. Of course, oil field workers are a great fight, too. They, they, they'd fight. They had a rough bunch. They'd fight. You know, if you wanted to fight, they'd fight. <laughs> you didn't have to have any excuse over politics or anything. You know. They're just a, just a rowdy bunch. People back then, they weren't actually mean, but now they, 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 were, they were full of life. I've traveled some of the same route. <laughs> you have? Yeah, oh yeah. But most oil field towns were rough. They made moonshine then, you know, a lot of it. Come all you booze fighters if you want to hear About the kind of booze that they sell around here It's made way back in the swamps in the hills Where there's plenty of moonshine stills Where they don't give a dang for the Balstead law And for prohibition we don't give a straw It's made out of buckwheat, rye, and corn And bottled up in some barn and an apple laid down with a lion After drinking this old moonshine Tip up your head and take a little drink Then for a week you won't be able to think First thing you know you'll be getting kind of tight Out on the street trying to raise a fight Tip up your head and take a little more Then for a month you'll be feeling kind of sore And you'll swear you won't drink it anymore But you've said that a thousand times before And the lamb will lay down with a lion After drinking this old moonshine My granddad was 82 years old when they called him on a fishing job over here next to Burning Springs. He was 82 and went over and fished a string of tools. And he had... I guess, one of the most remarkable senses of touch for getting those tools out of the hole that anybody has ever known in this part of the country. They would call him to Kentucky. They would call him to Pennsylvania on fishing jobs. We call it fishing for the tools in the hole. And he just had the knack for it, you know. Mr. Kane was drilling a well up here in Rock Run, and uh, he had lost the tools in the hole. He'd been fishing for him for some time and wasn't doing any good. My granddad rode his mule by him one day, and he said, uh, Mr. Kane said, uh, I'll come down and take those tools out of the hole for you. And if I can't fish him, it won't cost you anything. But if I fish him, you pay me my wages. And he informed my grandfather that uh, he didn't need his help, and he would get the tools. Well, I can take you up there to the spots marked yet where the tools are still at. <laughs> He didn't get them. Too proud ass. Working in the field still dark. Every row he knew by heart. His horse old Lewis pulling on the reins. Up through every row he'd go. You could hear him singing low. Then Lewis walked those fields alone for many years. I know my grandpa was a gentleman He always did you right He knew why time to say goodnight He was always saying how you doing Come on, set a spell And they talk out at the well We knew what stories he would tell Most every time 
Yeah, I do all that too. Loose the tools in the hole, piece them out. Well, you got to, you got rigs and you're running down in wells. The cable's gonna break once in a while. You're gonna have to go fishing for them tools. So the tools are in that hole. That well ain't gonna produce gas. She's gonna plug her up. When you're fishing, the old saying my dad always told me he said, You can see down as far down there as I can. You gotta feel and think what you're doing. You can see as far down that hole as I can. That ain't very far. I love to be by his side. I married him to be by his side. But yes, he appreciated all the help I gave him. He needed it. He was a workaholic. That's how they raised him to pay for the farm. But then, after he was a farmer for a while, he could see he wasn't going to make the good living altogether. And he went out and he got a job well tending, a pumper. He had a hundred wells that he pumped. My children were in school. If I had my work done up, yes. Sometimes I'd take my mending with me. And he said, well, if you have to do that, why didn't you stay home? I said, I want to be with you. It was fun. Some of the hills were dangerously high. Now, they didn't have the four-wheelers to ride back then. These wells were on the hill close to God, or they were down in the valley and so far up the creek that you could hardly get a billy goat. Now, that was right. We had to walk a lot of the times. Grandma always did you nice She always had some good advice Had homemade biscuits every single meal And they lived life side by side Their religion they abide My grandpa saw an angel on the day he died I know my grandpa was a gentleman And he always did you right he knew what time to say goodnight He was always saying how you doing Come on, set a spell And they talk out at the well We knew what stories he would tell Most every time Homer White run this pipeline gang at Caro. They were all local people, but work was so scarce, and he was a slave driver. He really was. They got down that ditch digging, they, they didn't come up. And I've heard him say two or three fellows come out of the ditch to whip him. There wasn't any unions, really, to mount anything back then, because that was in the 30s. Jobs were so scarce that people would just do anything to continue working. You know, they didn't want to lose their job. I was 12 years old in 1959, but before I had my driver's license, I could run a rig. And so he would take me out of the morning and leave me by myself, and then I would bail the well all day long, and then I'd rig it all down. And when he got off work that evening, we would move it to the next well so I could do it, and that's what I'd done in the summertime. And when these fast rigs came out till you could do a well in three days, it was dangerous my son ran those, and everything was just a slam and a bang to get done. And, and one time, this fire just came up, 
and Bernie's men, and he had just left the rig floor, and they had to take him to the hospital. They got all right. But, of course, they hurt for quite a while, but right, uh, you never know when something's going to happen. My dad had this pump station over in McFarland. He had to pump oil every time he got it full. And I was just a young boy, but sometimes he'd get behind his work. He'd start that compressor up pumping oil. And I'd stay there and watch that pump station. That was a scary job. <laughs> if they might blow up, get running too fast, maybe a pipeline blow up somewhere. Because where else can you make money when you're sleeping in bed? That gas well produces and that oil produces for you seven days a week. But it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the world keeps getting full of people, more demands for more stuff all the time. And how much oil the good Lord put at the bottom of this earth for us to work with, I don't know. I don't know what it isn't going to be run out. And how much just one person in his lifetime consumes of oil. Not only burns in his car, but things are made of oil. It's all based on what that number one thing, crude oil. I know my grandpa was a gentleman and he always did you right. He knew what time to say goodnight. He was always saying, how you doing? Come on, set a spell. And they talk out at the well. We knew what stories he would tell most every time. Parkersburg was the center of, of all this. There were refineries in Parkersburg. There was an oil refinery on the turnpike in Parkersburg until 1936. It became a major standard oil refinery. Johnson Newland Camden, who owned it, became a friend and had a business relationship with Rockefeller and helped Rockefeller take over the oil and gas industry in the United States. And his business sat right on the turnpike in Parkersburg. All these companies had teams, had baseball teams. And there were diamonds all over Parkersburg. There was one in North Parkersburg, there was one South Side. There was a big one out in Nicolette. They're listed in the papers, the roster and what their batting averages were. And there were six cooks on one team the Standard Oil team. A lot of the Cook brothers worked at that refinery for a long time, including my dad. When I first come to Parkinburg to live, you couldn't get up and down the streets hardly, especially on Saturday because of so much people. Oh, Market Street was busy till nine o'clock at night, every night. 
Then the big stores started coming in. First was the big grocery stores. It drove all the little grocery stores out of business. Then the big clothing stores. The Walmarts almost made a ghost town out of Market Street. Back then we had streetcars. Have you ever saw streetcars? They run on rails through the town. And they run from the Visco over town, they run to Marietta. And that's what we went to work on, was these streetcars. Guy Lombardo was here, Kennedy was here. The Wright Brothers plane crashed in the city park in 1913. Parkersburg was a bustling town. Number one, you had the Terrapin Park, and you had the Camden Theater. And anybody in vaudeville came to the Camden Theater. Houdini came here, Thurston the Magician, John Philip Sousa, George M. Cohan. I mean, you, you name anybody in vaudeville, and they came to Parkersburg and played the Camden because it was the theater in the eastern United States. And uh, the only trouble was the Camden burned down in 1929, and the Terrapin Park burned down in 1917. It seemed like everything we had worthwhile was destroyed by fire. There was the Chancellor Hotel, and I started work there when I was high school. I worked in the cafeteria, and my sister worked in the cafeteria, and my aunt worked in the cafeteria of the Chancellor. Uh, I had a lady send me a letter from South Carolina. Her grandmother wrote this story, and they called it Two Nickels. She told about uh, she and her cousin going to Terrapin Park. Each had a nickel, and they bought a bag of peanuts because they smelled the hot roasted peanuts, and then they went to the casino for the uh, band concert by Professor Arnold. And the man says, um, you got to pay today because Sousa's here. Well, she didn't know who Sousa was, and she didn't really care. And they argued with him, and finally he let him in for nothing. She said that she thought that Professor Arnold was just as good as Sousa. So anyhow, they uh, milled around the uh, park for a while, and they got on the streetcar, and they hid among the ladies' long skirts so they didn't have to pay. You didn't pay when you got on. You conductor come around and took your money. So she described the ride, how it rocked back and forth. And they got off down on 1st Street and started up Market Street, and they got to 5th. Pray there'd be a fire so they could see the white horses pull the fire wagons out. And when that didn't happen, they continued on up to 8th Street, and there was an ice cream parlor there. And they stopped and remembered the one nickel they had, so they went in, and a man, very stern-looking man in a white apron, the way she described it, came over, and she says, we want one dish of ice cream and two spoons. She said he glared at us and walked away. He came back with two dishes of ice cream. She says, you made a mistake. We only wanted one. And the cousin piped up and said, yeah, we only got one nickel anyhow. Says he threw his head back, just the way she described it. He threw his head back and laughed. He says, that's what I figured. He says, you pay for one and the other one's on the house because you both look like you're tired and sweaty. I was born here in Buchanan in 1918. There was a blacksmith shop just off of Main Street. These guys came in from the country, and they would ride their horses in or pull their wagons in. They would take the horses down to Foster's blacksmith shop, Mentor Foster would do the shoeing or whatever it was. There was a guy that made saddles and harnesses. And, of course, in those days, the mines were using ponies and mules. So he would make a particular collar, I guess they call it, for the animal. And there was a large Greek community. Same as we had Jewish families. One family, Levensteins, 
had a clothing store, department store. And it was a nice store, by the way. And the other guy was catering to the less affluent people in the town. He had an Army-Navy store, and he had a sign that he put out, fire sale. And he'd have a sale, he'd take the sign down, put the sign away. Next year, he'd come up and burn a newspaper or something, had a fire sale again. So he, you could depend on him having a fire sale every year. There were some Germans, too. And particularly on the western side of the county, Allen Bridge, Pickle Street, Camden. Pickle Street's one of those names. Supposedly, the guy had a little store, and he was making moonshine. He had moonshine for selling and kept a jar of pickles on the counter. Of course, you weren't allowed to make moonshine. And so they sell him a pickle for a nickel. Actually, sell him moonshine. They throw the pickle in the street and drink the moonshine. That's one story. Another story, some of the family had settled out there, and the girls were going to school, and they had their lunchbox. And they put some crowd in it, which is pickles. And they were walking a footbridge, and this one kid kept hitting her. She hit him over the head with her lunchbox, and her pickles flew up in the street. Buckhead was a sports town, really interested in sports. And in the Acme bookstore, they had a wall with a slate board on it. And they had the names of the teams, baseball, divided up in the innings. By telegraph, they would get the score of the game, and they'd post that up there. And we'd stand down there and watch that game by just watching that score on there. How do you entertain yourself? Watching people put scores up on a blackboard. The Grand Opera House had the silent films. When the talkies came to Buchanan... There was a big sign across the street, 25% talkie, 50% talkie, 100% talkie. There was a barber shop right across from his courthouse. And it was an old fellow named Charlie Post. On Saturday, Charlie had these country bands come in, and they would play in the barber shop while everybody was getting their hair cut. Listen, those guys. Airmail got out of Buckhannon via the golf course, and there was a rope between two poles. They'd hang the outgoing mail in a bundle to this rope. The plane would fly through, catch that thing, and take the mail. And if he had something from Buckhannon, he'd drop it. That was our first airmail. Well, Patty Dyer had a saloon where Kane Drugstore is. Patty Dyer kept a chicken coop back here because people, for lunch, they'd come in and have a beer with a raw egg in it. You know, that would be their lunch. So one day, old Elmer Straw, he wanted a beer and he didn't have any money, so he stole one of Patty Dyer's hens and he went up the street and Went through the alley and come back down Main Street and went in the front. Asked Patty Dyer if he'd give him a drink for a good laying hen. 
And Patty said, oh, sure. So he gave him a drink. He took hand throws out with the rest of them chickens out there. And he, he, bought his, he bought his own hand several times. Now <laughs> my old hen's a good old hen. She ain't laid an egg in I don't know when. Old hen cackles, she cackles a lot. Next time she cackles, gonna cackle in the pot. Who broke the lock? I don't know. Who broke the lock on the hen house door? I'll find out before I go. Who broke the lock on the hen house door? You've been listening to the voices of Ray Swick, Paul Bibby, David Scott, Mary Garrell, Paul Beckner, Duke Talbot, David Vago, David McCain, Betty Lutz, Richard Cook, Joy Stalnaker, Steve DeBruler, Catherine Brown, Steve Lehew, Noel Tinney, Jane Birdsong, David Scott, John Law, Bob Enick, Nancy Allman, Richard Hott, Tom Reinhardt, Frank Williams, Mary Lee Richards, Ralph Davis, Frida Morris, Anna Lee Stull, James Richards, Gary Jones, and Paul Borelli. Music was performed by Danny and Linda Mullen, Jerry Milnes, Michael Klein, R.P. Hale, Andy Fitzgibbon, Greta Van Doren, Swannigan Ray, Gene Berge, Becky McClung, Eric Chichester, David Norris, Keith Aronson, Billy Thompson, Don Cheney, Robbie Carruthers, Joe Herman, John Lilly, Leonard Stalnaker, and Jim Stalnaker. Old Virginians and Wildcatters was written and produced by Michael and Carrie Klein of Talking Across the Lines in Elkins, West Virginia for the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance with support from the National Scenic Byways Program of the Federal Highway Administration, the Oakland Foundation, and the McDonough Foundation. Mary Ramey and Phyllis Baxter are executive producers with special assistance from Bob Enick of the Wood County Historical and Preservation Society. Special thanks to David McCain of the Oil and Gas Museum and Ray Swick of the Blennerhasset Island State Park Museum of Regional History in Parkersburg. For Talking Across the Lines, I'm Michael Klein. Well, down in the hen house on my knees, I thought I heard a chicken sneeze. Only my rooster saying his prayers, giving out hymns to the hens upstairs. Who broke the lock? I don't know. Who broke the lock on the hen house door? I'll find out before I go. Who broke the lock on the hen house door? Who broke the lock on the hen house door?